Hey, it's Kathy. This week, we're sharing an episode from the show Rework, a women-led radio show from the UCLA Labor Center that spotlights the voices of workers, immigrants, and people of color. The episode that we're featuring is called No Child Left Behind, the school-to-prison pipeline, and it shares the story of Paul Sok, a Cambodian refugee who grew up in Long Beach. With many of us watching events in Afghanistan unfold from a distance, we've been reminded that the crisis is all too similar to experiences of refugees in some Asian diaspora communities. Many have complex relationships with U.S. military involvement and were forced to abandon their homes in order to survive. Paul Soak's story reflects on how America too often fails to protect those who need it most. We're linking to Rework's website in the show notes, so please check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more about the show at reworkradio.org. Okay, here's No Child Left Behind, the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm a product of violence. I'm a product of state violence, of the violence that's perpetuated by American policies. From the UCLA Labor Center in KPFK, this is Rework. I'm Sabah Wahid. And I'm Veena Humpapur. What comes to mind when you hear the word teenager, juvenile, child? To quote Whitney Houston, we often believe that children are our future, a symbol of hope for a better tomorrow. We see them as innocents who need love, support, and stability. But not all young people are nurtured this way. Too often, youth from marginalized communities of color are not seen as needing protection. They are treated as the ones we need protection from. We see this in today's episode with Paul Sok, who was once a kid in Long Beach forced to grow up too soon. This episode is part two of our series on Cambodian refugees who get caught up in the criminal justice system at a young age. My name is Paul Sok. I'm Cambodian by ethnicity, but born in the Thai refugee camps. My dad and my brother were living in Cambodia during the time of the Vietnam War. But after the Khmer Rouge took power, my dad and my brother wound up in forced labor camps, re-education camps. They had seen a lot of different things happen. You know, just a lot of murders and torture, crimes against humanity, things of that magnitude. During the Vietnam War, the U.S. enacted a brutal bombing campaign against Cambodia. Fearing for their lives, tens of thousands of civilians fled to Thailand, including Paul's father and 18-year-old brother. He just ended up in the U.N. camps, and that is where my dad and my mom actually met. If we look at it from that perspective, if not for the war, I would not be born. I was born after they had already been approved for asylee status in the United States. My family went into a staging camp for where you would travel out. And so I was born there. 61 days later, we were in LAX. And so that's when I arrived to the U.S. as a child of a refugee. A family unit was me, my mom, my dad, and my brother. The transition to life in Southern California in the 80s just wasn't that easy. My parents ended up divorcing due to a lot of the issues of just trying to like adapt to a new environment. Shortly after the divorce, we ended up moving. My dad felt very uncomfortable in L.A. He said there weren't a lot of Cambodians. And then he found that there were pockets of Cambodians that had settled in Long Beach. 
Paul's family was part of a migration of refugees that moved to lower-income neighborhoods in Long Beach. Today, Long Beach is home to the largest Cambodian population in the country. My dad felt more comfortable with neighbors that were Cambodian, that he can go knock on a door and ask for something, hey, I need some sugar. When I needed something or times of need or whatever when I was younger, it was always folks from the Cambodian community that were there. I do remember like first day of school, like nobody walks you or anything. You just follow the line, just try to figure out where you're going. And I remember starting to cry. I was like five years old and like all kinds of white students walked by. Nobody did anything. Then there was an older Cambodian student. She came through. She was the first one to grab my hand and like figured out where I was supposed to be at. Stuff like that kind of left a mark on me, made me more comfortable being around other Cambodians the embrace from like a white community or a black community or a brown community just wasn't there. Paul's father worked long hours to provide financially and his older brother had moved out. As a child, Paul had to learn how to take care of himself. From the age of, I want to say, seven or eight, I was basically coming home to nobody. And so I had to learn how to cook, I had to learn how to feed myself. And I always used to wonder where my dad was, and then he was like, you know, I'm out just trying to make money. When he was in the camps, he had been beaten in the back with some rifles and stuff like that. So he had a lot of injuries, physical trauma amongst, you know, emotional trauma, etc. What type of meaningful, sustaining labor is there for folks like that? And so he would do like manual labor, whatever he could do. He used to go out, collect cans and recycle as a means of income. My dad never drove, so was always using public transit or you'd find a shopping cart to use. Those were my earliest memories of my dad. Neighborhood violence became a concern as Paul approached his teen years. I want to say there was a lot of violence within the communities. It came to a situation where, you know, I literally only walked a couple of miles back and forth between home and school. But some of my friends only walked about a mile and some of my friends never made it home. That was the type of violence that was brewing inside the communities. In my teenage years, it became more of cops drawing down on us and pointing guns at us, telling us to get up on the wall and, you know, searching us and things like that, going through our backpack. Those became more of a regular occurrence. It was just us in the neighborhoods, just hanging out like in the front yard where we knew we'd be safe. And sometimes the helicopters would be coming by and the next thing you know, here comes police showing up, like blocking off both sides of the street and then just finding everybody that's young, that's Asian and telling us all to sit on the curb. Sometimes it's five or six of us, sometimes it's 10 or 12 of us. Paul and his friends were not being protected from danger. They were being treated like they were the danger. For a lot of us growing up, we didn't have a lot of money, so a lot of our clothes were hand-me-downs, and so we would look baggy. And, you know, out there, like a young person walking around in baggy clothing, you know, you're getting profiled as a certain way. It didn't matter if your backpack was full of books. You know, you're just walking home. That's all they saw. They were putting us on cop cars, on top of the hood. Sometimes it would get really bad. There were instances where people were being put in the back of a police car, not even being arrested or anything, and then the cop car would drop them off in the alley somewhere and just, like, tell them to get out of the car, and the cop car would drive off, leaving these people in danger. And this became more and more frequent. Policing youth of color was nothing new. But what changed in the 1990s was that politicians and media fostered a sense of crisis. This contributed to surveilling and criminalizing low-level offenses that had not been punished in the past. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. 
The systems used minor infractions to build criminal records, pushing youth into the criminal justice system even before a serious crime was committed. When it came to youth from marginalized communities, punishment trumped care. Because they're always asking, hey, who are you? What's your name? Where do you live? What's your address? And so it leads me to assume like all of us at some point got put into a gang database. There wasn't any opportunity to really process those interactions. We just kind of had to deal with them and just accept them for what they were. If I wanted to go tell my brother about it, he'd be like, well, what did you do wrong? You know, if I went and told my dad about it, he'd be like, well, what did you do wrong? If we went to the school and we said it, you know, and then the school would just kind of look at it sideways. And so when we have these encounters with law enforcement, you know, all the adults around us are thinking we did something wrong. I kind of felt secluded. They never saw these encounters for what they were. And so I had to just, like, kind of suck it up. As a young person, it's very, like, traumatizing. It carried through with me as I got a little bit older, too. Then in high school, Paul's father became ill. I had to rush home or I had to find a means of somebody to drive me home because he needed daily care. I would come home from school, go get the heparin, had to go get a syringe, had to go check his jeopardy and his feeding bag, make sure the machine was running, no alarms or anything like that, check his weight, make sure his catheter was clean, et cetera, right? and making sure the supplies were there. Kept me secluded, kept me isolated, and not really having anybody else to hang out with. I didn't have any siblings that were my age. I didn't really have any peers. Paul took care of his dad this way for over a year. One day, he got a call from the hospital. My dad had passed away. Some of the last words from him weren't the greatest of words to me. Kind of yelled at me, blamed me for being sick, stuff like that. So I had to process all of that real fast or try to process it and deal with losing him. Paul was just 16 years old, and now he was completely on his own. Nobody came to check up on me. Nobody from social services showed up. There wasn't a youth center I could go to. There wasn't a grief counselor, you know. I would have walked two, three miles to see somebody say, hey, what do I do now? The only thing I got was a pamphlet from the hospital that said, hey, this is grief. I read it, didn't understand it. Had never dealt with grief before, so I didn't know what grief was. I needed somebody to, like, tell me, give me that understanding. I went to school, and I was like, my dad just died. And the teachers were like, oh, that, that sucks. But it wasn't like, oh, wait, hold on. Really? Like, who are you living with? Like, who's taking care of you now? Paul had been an engaged student with a knack for electronics. It was just like a natural skill or aptitude I have. My dad would just buy me like soldering iron, solder, and just give me stuff. Like I would find broken stuff. Or in some cases, I would have working stuff and I would break it to try to learn how it worked. I was enrolled in Poly High School, but I was also enrolled in a Cal State program. It was a dual program. So I was getting Cal State credits while I was working towards my high school diploma at the same time. And so it was a program that was set up for me to be able to get into the field of electrical engineering to like really go in that route. His father's death started to impact his education. He was struggling, even in the Cal State program he loved. I tried to stay focused and try to do some schoolwork and try to maintain the Cal State program. And the only reason, too, is because when I was withdrawing, the professor was like, look, there's something unique about you. You have a talent, you have a skill. He pulled out this dot chart, and there was one that was way above everybody else. and said, that dot is you. That's your score, even though you've missed every single assignment except for one. There's something about you. You have the ability to like work with this information I'm giving you. 
He's like, whatever you do, come back to my class. I don't care if you ditch the others, skip the rest, whatever. Just don't miss this class. And so I tried, I tried, I tried. It became, you know, more and more difficult as it went by. Paul realized he needed help, so he reached out to his high school counselor. So I went to go see the counselor. I said, hey, I'm really struggling. What do we do? While she was eating on a sandwich, she handed me a piece of paper, said, sign here, turn in your books by the end of the day, and report to this packet school. They didn't say, hey, well, why don't you wait, hold on, let's talk about this. It was just, here's your slip, sign it, turn it in. And then when I went to the other school, that's when I learned it was just a packet school. They literally copied exercises out of a textbook. The work was like very remedial. They gave me a card and they said, this card is what you show to law enforcement when you have law enforcement contact. They didn't say if you get stopped, they say when you get stopped by the police. That was like more of an important conversation than the curriculum itself. The whole system had failed Paul. Social workers, teachers, and counselors, they all missed the chance to provide him with resources. Rather than being a place of nurturing and growth, schools mirrored the surveillance and control he faced in the streets. Paul struggled coming home to an empty house. I would walk home and like my dad wasn't there, right? Like nobody was there, and I would just sit being very bummed out, very depressed. And I can only take so much depression, I would just leave the house. And so I just ended up in the streets. And the one thing I found was that the streets embraced me. And they said, You lost your dad, man. We, we feel you. Let's just hang out, whatever. And so with that embrace, you know, it was like very heartwarming, right? In a sense, it was helpful just to keep me emotionally stable. I would hang out just trying to cope with forgetting about losing my dad. I hung out and I hung out more and more and more. And with more hanging out, I got involved with thefts and things of that nature, a lot of property crimes and stuff like that. At the age of 17, I ended up being arrested. The arrest was very demeaning. It was like the sun was barely coming up. They put me up against the garage next to my house and they started taking pictures of me handcuffed students that I knew in the neighborhood were walking by, elders that were taking their kids to school. White and middle-class youth who have run-ins with the law are often treated as troubled kids who need help, receiving mental health counseling and guidance. This was not an option for Paul, despite being the product of generations of violence and trauma. I ended up going to Central Juvenile Hall. I didn't know what I was being charged with. Finally, I went to court and they just handed me some papers and said, here, they want to send you to adult court. It was a matter of a 30-minute hearing. The fate of my life was decided by this. I got the paperwork and I'm starting to read it and I'm trying to figure it out. And I start seeing the charges and then I start seeing how they add up all the years. I was like, oh my God. I was looking at like 40-something years. I was like, man, that's, I haven't even been alive that long. I haven't even been like half of that time. At some point, somebody said, oh, you're probably going to get deported. What are you talking about, you know? So that was like the first ring of it. But still, I never like, oh, whatever. I was like more confused with going to court rather than thinking about like my status here as an immigrant. So that came later on. Paul never had a childhood. And when he was arrested, he was prosecuted as an adult. In the 1990s, this became increasingly common in the courts due to the racist fears of growing youth crime. Even 13-year-olds faced life sentences. 
went off, I go to prison. And I looked around and everybody was in their 30s, their 40s, and everybody was like grown men. So I had to like really navigate this environment and just try to like, hey, who can I trust? What do I do here? Just trying to figure that out. And so I had to learn how to just basically grow up in that environment. And as my birthdays went by, I ended up spending all of my 20s in there. And then my 30s came around. I spent my 31st, my 32nd, my 34th. I'm like, wow, you know, I still have quite a few more years to go. During that time, I started to like go to programs and started to like really do things, learn some law. Oddly enough, I started learning law because folks came to me with legal papers and they said, hey, can you help me understand this? I said, why are you asking me? They said, you're young, you've probably been in school, you can probably read better English than I can. I don't know any of this. I've been in prison, you know, in and out all my life. And so I spent 14 years worth learning different aspects of law. I had to learn it on my own. After Paul's family came to the United States as refugees, they became legal permanent residents. Despite having a green card, Paul was still vulnerable to deportation to a country he had never been to. After I went into prison, I was told that I would see a counselor and then the counselor would assign where I would go. This white lady came in and they called me out by name. So I went down there and they were like, do you have a green card? And I was like, yeah, my family came here, but I have a green card. And then she was like, well, you know, I'm with immigration. I was like, oh, okay. And then she was like, you're probably gonna get deported. Other people in the building saw me and they were like, hey, who is that? Man, you're going somewhere already? Like, I've been there a year waiting. I'm like, no, that was INS. They were like, oh, wait, what? I talked to other Cambodians. They were like, when you get out, they're going to come get you. And so from that conversation with the lady, she ended up filing a detainer. And the only reason she came to the prison to visit me was because when the state prison system receives somebody and brings them into the prison system, they come with some paperwork. And on the paperwork, there's a box that says citizenship. And whoever wrote this report wrote unknown. They called INS just to say that triggered the request. This experience with immigration didn't impact Paul until he had a chance for parole. In 2014, California Senate Bill 260 recognized that youth should not have been tried as adults. They could be released if they showed remorse and rehabilitation. I was one of the first ones to come to make it through that very hard barrier, very high standards. But unfortunately, you know, in that conversation, they said, hey, you know what, you have this ice hold. So I started looking at immigration law. I started reading up, kind of like deciphering backwards, deciphering, just reading the cases from the federal courts of what they had ruled. Do I have an opportunity for relief? Am I really deportable? And I started looking. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm like under mandatory deportation. I've been here all my life, didn't matter. Came here as refugees, none of that mattered. My only family's here, didn't matter. The fact that my brother, my sole remaining sibling was a U.S. citizen, didn't matter, like none of this mattered. When my release date came, I saw a gentleman in a gray suit with a firearm walking in, getting my parole. Like the papers that were supposed to be given to me to say report to this address was being given to this person. I ended up being shackled. While I was being escorted out, I was watching other people go home, carrying their property, ready to go out go catch the bus or go meet their family outside the gate. You know, people were happy, but here I go into the unknown. So I went to ICE, got the paperwork from them, got a notice to appear, got placed in detention. ICE wanted to deport me to Thailand. And I always said, well, you know, my parents are Cambodian. And they were like, eh, whatever, you were born in Thailand. And as soon as I take the order, they start processing me to go to Washington to go see the consulate. Just to share a little bit about how much money ICE has to spend on enforcement not looking at last year's budget, but just this journey I had. Paul took a bus from Bakersfield to Fresno to Sacramento County Jail. I'm like, wait, should I be like flying? They were like, no, you're going to be here. You're going to go to Sac County Jail for the night. They came back, put us on a bus. 
take us to the ice building, sit in a tank, I'm like, hey, where are we going? You know, I'm supposed to be going to Washington. They're like, no, you're going to Arizona. They finally put us on a plane. This is the first time I've been on a plane that I have a working memory of. I had never been on a plane except for like coming from overseas. It's a private charter flight full of U.S. Marshals. And they were like, yeah, you're going to San Diego first. Sure enough, this plane takes us, goes to San Diego, and then it hops over to Arizona and it takes off from Arizona. We land in Denver, drops everybody off, except for me, a Somalian, and the other Cambodian. So it's just the three of us from Denver to Washington on a fully chartered 737. And so I was like, dang, this costs a lot of money, right? I see the consulate. The consulate said, we're just here to gather data, the information. We take that back to Cambodia. They'll make the decision over there, whoever the decision makers are. He's like, here, do your thumbprint in red for us. Go stand up over there, take your picture. That'll be your passport picture if they do take you. Went back and waited. Mind you, I'm always in like private facilities all this time. And so I have this term like deportation incorporated. That's what it really is. And on the journey back, it's the same route, except it's backwards. We finally make it back to Bakersfield. And the ICE agent asked me, hey, what did they tell you? I was like, hey, you know, honestly, I don't know. And then the six-month mark was nearing. Next time I saw him again, I said, hey, man, my 180-day review is coming around the corner. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to recommend to detain me or not to continue? He said, nah, man, I'm going to release you. Just give me a few days. One night, he kept yelling my name. As soon as he saw me, he said, hey, who's getting you your ticket? I was like, man, you give me a date and a time, I will have somebody here to pick me up. He said, tomorrow at 10 a.m. I was like, all right, you got it. In the morning, they pulled me out. And then he said, you know, as soon as you land, go get your work permit. You see your deportation officer, check in, show him that you're doing good, whatever, stay out of trouble. And he was like, man, good luck to you. And that was like the last time I ever saw him. And so off I go. That was in March of 2016. That was my first time being outside of a confined environment ever as an adult. Was sitting on a planter on the curb, just looking around like, I don't even know where I am. I don't know what to do. If my family doesn't show up, I don't even know what to do. You know, I was like, mm, I'm probably just going to walk and carry this stuff over there to this restaurant and ask if I can use the phone. So it was just like kind of like playing out these scenarios. But sure enough, my brother came around the corner. My brother was like, you need ID, you know, because I didn't have any ID. And always people told me when you get out, you're going to need your ID because if you don't, you're not going to be able to do anything out there, especially because you're losing your status. It's going to be very difficult. So I ended up going to the DMV. Sensory overload. There was so much lights and noise and people. Mind you, it had been in like very monochrome environment for all that time. I never heard helicopters. I didn't hear dogs barking, cars, the normal noises of life. Like I didn't hear any of that for such a long time. And so now I'm being bombarded with all this stuff, like wait in line, here's your number, take your ticket, sign here, move it, get in that line. Paul settled into South LA and became involved with volunteering and his local church. He was getting his life together and moving on. And then one day there's a letter in the mail. It was from Homeland Security. It said, come, report, check in. I went and started asking around about this letter and they were like, no, every time we've seen it, it was always a redetention. So that was like very difficult. By the time I got this letter, it hadn't been about three months. And I was like, oh, man, dang, I got to go. It's my time. I'm like, well, at least I'll be free over there, you know, liberty-wise. You know, I won't be looking over my shoulder, like hiding from the law. Just knowing that deportation was coming at some point was like very brain-wracking, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of depression. Just like having the ability to just get up every day was very challenging because I was always thinking about that. I became like very recluse, very quiet. I went to report and 
Sure enough, I got re-detained. Paul ended up in Orange County and awaited his deportation. His brother visited him, and now he also had a whole community of support. Folks from the church that I got plugged in with started showing up. The pastors were showing up. Folks from the community were just showing up. People I had just barely met that didn't even know me. And they were like, man, if you know how to do anything to like stop your deportation, do it. We'll support you 100% of the way. Like Whatever we can do, let us know. We want to see you here with us. When Paul's plane didn't arrive as scheduled, he filed paperwork challenging his deportation. All those years of studying law paid off. Paul got his case reopened. I asked for a bond hearing, got the bond hearing. The same folks from the community came. They filled up the courtroom, spoke up for me. And the judge was like, OK, I'm going to give you $5,000 bond with an ankle monitor. And I didn't have any money. And so the folks that ultimately paid it were the folks that came to court. They did a little bit of fundraiser. Eventually, the bond got paid. And I came out last day of November of 2016. I walked back out again. Paul became involved in the fight for immigrant rights and the development of a justice fund to assist those facing deportation. When I went back to the community, I felt that same sense of panic. Folks that I used to see in the communities, I wasn't seeing anymore. I wasn't seeing the pilotera that was down the street selling corn. Those are the faces that are missing, the palatero going around selling ice cream. Like, I didn't see these people anymore. I saw that same, like, people were hiding people. And then I learned that it was that same fear that I saw in detention. It was that same fear, except now in what we would say is the free world, the liberated world, if you could call it that. Just free of physical confinement, right? I was out, like, really just challenging that narrative, like, that dichotomy, just because somebody wasn't born here, they shouldn't get a second chance, right? Or a third chance or a fourth chance that somebody that was born here would get, right? Why are people being treated any different? You know, it's kind of this backwards way of thinking, right? Like, we say we're a land of equality, but where is that equality? So, like, it takes immigrants to get involved with the fight for immigration, right? But it also takes migrants to also understand, like, the narrative, like, criminal, I'm not a criminal, is not the way to go. A lot of times I see young people, DACA students particularly, say, we're not criminals. I'm like, hey, you know, you just threw me under the bus. You know, you also threw your parents under the bus because your parents violated the law when they came without inspection. Like, remember these things, right? So to be mindful of that. This work eventually connected Paul with the Youth Justice Coalition, an organization committed to challenging incarceration and discrimination. They were like, hey, why don't you come check us out, get involved. That's what led me to being involved with the Youth Justice Coalition where I am now, continuing to do a lot of more wider-ranging work now besides immigration. They were able to give me stipends, which were able to help sustain me. But then also, the one thing that YJC did for me that nobody else did was they offered me their platform. And they said, this is what we have access to, However you want to use that to fight your deportation, it's all yours. And basically with that platform, I end up getting, you know, a lot of legislative support from every level aside from the White House that pushed Governor Brown to give me a pardon. Folks from the community were outpouring support. And so because of that work, I ended up getting a pardon in August of last year. And so it's been roughly a year. And so through that, I ended up going back to my next court date. The case was terminated. And so now I have my residency restored. Now a YJC organizer, Paul embodies the community support, wisdom, and guidance he needed growing up in Long Beach. You know, the story still goes on, right? It doesn't even end, and the work continues on. But for me, I think ultimately, though, my goal in this is to, like, really help people understand that, you know, when this country was founded, it wasn't built for the benefit of people, the indigenous people. It wasn't built for the benefit of anybody that was black or anybody that was brown. And so, you know, these are the things that create 
a lot of the social factors what causes people to end up in the systems that we end up in, right? And so those are the things that I try to work on, those things that I try to kind of flip that model. You know, if you're going to invest in policing, also invest in our young people. One of our youth organizers, she always says, if the youth are the future, then why are you treating youth this way? Like, why are the investments not there? Like, nobody seems to know how to answer that. And so, you know, I, that's the work that I do today, now with YJC. A special thanks to Paul Soak for sharing his story. To find out more about the work of the Youth Justice Coalition, you can visit their Facebook page at Youth Justice LA. You're listening to ReWork, a program of the UCLA Labor Center and KPFK. This week's show was produced by Vina Hampapur, Sabah Wahid, Pam Gwen, and Amy Zhou. Editing by Vina Hampapur and D'Angelo Jones. Subscribe to ReWork Radio on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Visit our website at reworkradio.org or Facebook at forward slash reworkradio. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at rework underscore radio. Till next time, rethink, rework.